Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Jerry, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. Can you just introduce yourself and give a little bit of context about who you are and how you got started in the IFB movement? Okay, and thank you for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Um, My name is Jerry Massey, and in 2001, uh, I became very um, concerned about documenting clergy sexual abuse of children in Christian fundamentalism. I felt it was, I believe it was my calling, and I followed it out until uh, about 2014 when my health collapsed and I could no longer do it. But still, I, I kind of keep my hand in, keep my ear to the ground. I've written a couple books. I produced a podcast for several years, two podcasts, in fact, and um, did a couple audio online documentaries. Right. Yeah. No, I found you pretty early on. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure for people that already know my story, like I, my first encounter with any story of abuse within the IFB was someone that actually was attending my church. And so, um, I probably came across one of your articles or something at that time as well, um, with all the things that I was reading. But, um, I know for me building out the abuser database for the IFB for, doing quick research to see, you know, who's from what state, what connection to a pastor, um, your book, uh, the big book of bad Baptist preachers has been like, I mean, an invaluable resource. Um, <laughs> oh, perfect. So, um, but yeah, that's been a huge resource. Your, thank your you. blog has been a huge resource. Oh, thank um, you. you know, the audio documentary has been awesome as well. And there's, you know, one thing that you do really well that I've struggled with is contextualizing like a certain scenario. So like who's connected to who, how are these things being systematically covered up? Because one, the IFB by its nature doesn't do a big job of like tracking that stuff on its own. It doesn't show clear connections. And so I know with your audio documentary side, like there's certain stories where 
you take the whispers of what's happening, you take the accounts of what's happening and assemble it into the story. Like um, Michael Strofe out of Pleasant Valley in Chico. There's not a lot of hard evidence out there as far as what his case is when you start Googling his name, but there's plenty of, you know, very poorly kept secrets within that world. So I, I appreciate your, your approach to it. I think it's been super helpful. Thank you. Well, it was important to me from the beginning to try to always meet the biblical standard of two or three witnesses. And Mm -hmm. so there have been one or two cases where a victim was so overwrought uh, and was willing to have their name used that I would do the account just based on a single victim. But in 108 cases, that was probably two or three cases. Normally, my procedure was I had to have two accounts And even if I didn't name them, I had to know that they were willing to be named if I had to name them, that in other words, they would back me up. And I kept to that. And I think that has given the data I've put together a certain reliability that people um, overall usually can can still look at it and say, yes, this is true. The story is true. We've got some witnesses. Of course, it's always better to use news accounts um, that's, you know, or, or police reports. But. Um, if two people, you know, would give me accounts that overall matched, I would, I would use that. Right. So what was it that initially sparked your first, I mean, obviously actually writing has been a, a huge thing for you for seems for a very long time. So, but as far as writing about the, you know, fundamentalist movement, when was it that you decided to take that on? Was there a certain case that you saw personally that really set you in motion? Was it just hearing a ton of these and just built to a point where you had to say something? What was kind of the guiding factor there? Well, I think the Brent Stevens case, mm. you know, was probably the case that was on my mind <clears throat> all the time. And I had first learned of the Brent Stevens case, like in the mid 1990s. And sort of as I, I was slowly coming out of fundamentalism, but was still very conservative evangelical. Um, uh, and, you know, I would hear about the Brent Stevens case. And then somebody said to me, hey, you know, Royal Glover knows a lot about that case. I, I don't know if you've ever had contact with Royal Glover. He was I have the lawyer. I, I want wrote, to. Very, yeah, okay. Very he wrote badly. Fundamental Seduction. The thing that really touched off for me was 9-11. When 9-11 hmm. happened, I had a great... I wouldn't call it a crisis of faith because I believed in Christ more. I had a great crisis of, I guess, shame. I looked at these people suffering. Um, just, I, I still tear up at it. I just saw the death and I believed and still believe in Eric. I don't mind if you don't believe this, that God had judged this country in its two great idols, money, the World Trade Center, and our confidence in our military might, the Pentagon, that God threw down two idols. And I looked at my life and I thought, okay, I'm, I was in my 40s. And I, and I thought, okay, I've never been married. I've never had an affair. So I'm pure. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a thief. But I looked at all that and I thought, I'm a terrible Christian. What, what have I actually done? What have I actually done to serve the Lord? What have I actually right. done? That ha- I mean, it's to my benefit that I don't fool around sexually, that I'm not into drugs. That benefits me. Right. But I, and, and in my, I just realized I was a selfish, horrible Christian. I had not lived up to my profession of faith. And I spent the afternoon um, of 9-11, uh, 9/11 praying. 
And I think by that night or the next day, I thought I started to put together, what do I know how to do? I knew how to do this thing called root cause analysis. And I, and I, and that the Brent Stevens case was, was on my mind again. And I thought, you know something, this is a terrible evil. And I believe God has judged us because of a terrible evil. So I am going to make sure that this one terrible evil, that they don't get away with it anymore. And I thought, there might even be six or seven child abuse cases out there in fundamental churches. I'm going to find them and I'm going to document them hmm. and I'll just put them on the Internet and let God choose like how how famous this is. But they're going to be on the Internet like they won't be swept under the rug anymore. Hmm. I will put them out there. And I was so naive. I really thought like six or seven would be the hmm. max of how many cases you, I would discover. You would hope, you know? And, yeah, you um, would hope. So um, for those that don't know, just for context, and I think it's important, um, can you just break down the the Brent Stevens case was something I was unfamiliar with until, um, I mean, probably end of last year um, when oh, okay. I started. I, I found out that whole other thread of the David Hiles. I was familiar with the scandals around him, but that was one that switched, you know, kind of slipped past me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Brent Stevens case just for people who don't know what it is and, you know, maybe direct them toward it, you know, where you have done writing about it? Yeah. Um, Brent Stevens was, he was, Dave Hiles went down to a church called Miller Road Baptist Church to be its pastor. And that ties in with Joy's story, but I won't steal her thunder. He went down there. He was married to Paula. Um, while he was there, he had numerous affairs and this was discovered when, a church custodian found a suitcase full of pornographic pictures of Dave with a bunch of different church women. So Dave um, got in front of the church and said he was sorry if he'd hurt anybody. But Brenda Stevens was one of the women. She stayed with Dave. Paula left him with their two children and Brenda went with Dave and Brenda had two children. Brent was <clears throat> the younger child. And he was, I think, just like walking at that time. And then later after they were up in Bolingbrook, Illinois, like people noticed Brent wasn't walking. He, his development seemed stunted. So somebody actually got him to a doctor. I don't think it was his parents. And they found huh. that I think it was eight or nine bones in his body were broken and had been broken at different times and had never been treated. He was taken from them. Um, Paul Cialino was the child uh, child welfare police officer assigned to the case, the detective. Um, he was very concerned. He tried to protect Brent, but ultimately the court gave Brent back to David and Brenda. And Paul Cialino told the judge that signed off on that, that Brent would die if he went back with them. And then within a few weeks, Brent was dead. There was an empty bottle of Actifed under Brent's bed. Brent's brother had contacted me at one point and told me he remembered that night. And he said David dressed Brent in a lot of clothing. And um, he, you know, he told me that he saw David administer the, the drug to Brent in an overdose and kill him. It was a weekend. Um, uh, David and Brenda rushed Brent out to be embalmed and buried. Paul Cialino uh, came back. He, when he found out about it, he, he got the body exhumed. There was as much of an autopsy as could be done. There was an inquest. David pleaded the fifth at the inquest. 
Paul Alino declared that Dave Hiles had, had murdered Brent Stevens. He was he was very forthright and unafraid. And Dave Hiles did everything he could to bully him. Cialino said it on the air that, that Dave Hiles was the prime suspect in this, even though the inquest returned. Oh, I can't remember what it was. It, they not murder, but but like an unresolved death. Like that was what they had come back with. David Hiles set out to follow in his father's footsteps, but his zest for women cost him his pulpit and his first marriage. When David left a Texas church in disgrace, he and his girlfriend, Brenda Stevens, moved to Bolingbrook, Illinois, with her two children by her first marriage. It wasn't long before her youngest son, 17-month-old Brent Stevens, came to the attention of abuse investigators. In 1985, they found him with a broken leg plus eight or nine bones in various stages of healing. Paul Cialino was a homicide investigator for the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services. He and his team fought, unsuccessfully, to keep Brent away from David and Brenda. I wasn't concerned this child was going to be abused again. I was concerned this kid was going to wind up dead. That was my concern. His concern was justified. A few months later, Brent Stevens was found dead in his crib. Due to bureaucratic bungling, an inconclusive autopsy was done at a hospital instead of the morgue. But at the inquest, David Hiles invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Brenda, the mother of the dead child, was a no-show. As for the status of the investigation... This case is an open case still today. And nothing's been done. Can anything be done with this? Absolutely. It's a murder case. I would even go further and say that if I could get David and Brenda in a court of law, they'd both get convicted of murder, without a doubt. I have a dead child with a history of abuse, and I have two people who are the only people who access to that child at night. With Brent, you know, uh, and, and Eric edit this out if it's too much, but I, I question God. Like, how could you let this happen to this little boy? How could you let this happen? And I prayed about it for a long time. And eventually I realized I'm asking God this so that I can be comfortable with Brent's death. Like I have to be able to live my life. So somehow God has to make sense of this to me. And I realized if I just set that aside and love Brent so that Brent becomes Brent, my son, then I'll understand the love of God for the victims and the Lord did it, and Brent became Brent, my son. And I wish, I wish I could have that love for every person that I meet. Um, but, but so far, I don't. Like everybody else, I still struggle to love my neighbor. But Brent became Brent, my son, and that was when I, when I started being harassed for what I was doing on the original Fighting Fundamentalist forums, I told them that I will always be the person who calls him Brent, my son, because I understand that that is actually the mind of Christ toward each one of us. Mm. He is our, our father, our brother our best friend. And when we start adopting that mindset, we stop saying, Lord, how can you do this? But we, we get more into participating in the suffering with the person. And, right. and that to me, I think was a milestone in my faith. And I'm, so I hope that answers your question. Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, it, it, it does. And I think that really, I mean, that kind of explains the why of why do this, you know? And I think, you know, I've had people ask me that, you know, why, 
I've gotten every rebuttal. I mean, why waste time talking about a dying movement? Why spend time talking about such a small movement? Why waste time, you know, talking about an organization that, you know, by the numbers is not doing as much as this organization or that organization. And I don't know. I, I always, you know, I'm just saying this for context. I'm not saying this to make myself sound like whatever, but I'm, I'm a very empathetic person and I, and I, I resonate very strongly with what you just said about, you know, treating it as if it's your son, treating each case as if it's in, I do like doing this show um, for me with that personality type has been very hard because for me, when I sit down and talk to somebody or when I sit down and, you know, hear someone's story, my mind, my mind drifts to what if this was my sister or my mom or my brother or my son or my daughter? Like the minute I, I think for a second, you know, what if this was my daughter having a daughter myself it, it changes your entire way of viewing these cases. It doesn't become what percentage of IFB versus the Catholic church or what percentage of IFB versus the public school system or what percentage of pastors that if one person experienced this, it needs to be talked about. And the fact right. that it's yes. not, you know, and the truth is at the end of the day, it's not one person. It's not one, you know, one random guy. That's a bad guy. Like there has been a movement filled with people who protect or fuel or encourage abuse within churches. And that's just the truth. (laughs) And, and it's, you know, people can fight me on, you know, whether it's systemic or not or whether, but my question to everybody is if that's your first response is to prove that it's, you know, it's what you said. I need this to not be happening. It's more comfortable for me to not think of this as a real thing. And right. so, yeah, I, I think that really beautifully answers the question because it is something it's hard for me to explain is like when I get on the phone with somebody, you know, early on, like I started splitting up my calls because I need that time after a call to process that, oh, that yeah, level right, of stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely that's, that's awesome. And so, well, I, I can say I documented 108 cases that I published. Yeah. I probably looked into maybe 120 altogether, but some right. didn't meet the standards. So about 108, well, 108. In 108 cases, no church ever did the right thing at all, yeah. ever. Well, that no was church the, took the side of the victims. Yeah, that's the shocking part of your book, um, of uh, Big Book of Bad Baptist Preachers, is you list out was church discipline taken. And every page you turn to, no, 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 all the way through. Um, didn't, no. So, so when you started writing about, you know, Brent Stevens initially, and then diving into some of these other cases, what was the response? I know that you've gotten your fair share of backlash. I mean, it's been, that's been the majority of your responses, but was there a period in the beginning where people were listening, where people did try to understand, or was it instant kind of trying to rebut what you were saying? Well, this was back in 2001, going in, so September of 2001, so soon 2002. We didn't have Facebook back then. Right. We had forums, internet forums. And at that time, Jack Piles and many fundamentalists said it was a sin to use the internet. So there was not a large IFB or fundamentalist presence on the internet. So a guy named Don Elborn created the Fighting Fundamentalist Forums, Mm. the first version of that. 
when I started posting, I was more um, rebutting some of the silly notions of fundamentalism, like women have to can't wear pants. And right. all, I was because all that time I was still gathering information. I did believe that once I had put together this half dozen set of cases and presented my evidence that people would say, oh, wow, look at this, you know, and there's evidence. She's right. We have to, yeah. we ought to restructure, you know, and I really did think it was going to be a year's work. And, and as I started doing cases, I did realize there's more than a half dozen, but again, then I was like between 10 and 25. Like I still had no grasp. There was still anomalies many. in your mind. Yes. Yeah, that's it. This is outlier data that we have to be careful about, but um, I didn't realize that, that, and this is true. The molesting of children is just as much a part of independent fundamental Baptist as baptism is. It is mm. absolutely entrenched. It is part of the culture and it's going to have to be eradicated from the culture painfully or difficult. You know, there's going to have to be massive changes to get this out of that culture. Mm. Um, so when I finally did present it, which I think was around January or February of 2002, as soon as I presented it, even people who were who would have considered themselves allies with me told me I was, I mean, they were rude. You know, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. There's no such thing. It, and I'm, you know, posting this stuff and showing them. Nobody could refute my evidence. No, they just, Attacked it was my assessment. Right. Um, I said, because these churches are each independent, there's no accountability and people just go from one church to another and nobody knows and it's covered up and children aren't respected. And um, I was unanimously shouted down and like the meek person I was, I came right back and said, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't know anything. Haven't you read the Bible? And and this is what I told you when we were speaking off mic. Meekness is something I'm beginning to learn uh, here in 2020. But in 2002, I was I was not meek, and I was always I always tried to be gentle with the I called them the lambs, the people who had been through this. I always you know wanted to be gentle with them, but I'm telling right. you, to pastors, I was hell on wheels. Right. Well, and I think that to you know, again, we can all look back. Like I've said, there's things I've said or or times sure. I've been flippant or sarcastic where maybe I shouldn't have been, but there's also part of it where I think sometimes. Uh, it's good to be hell on wheels, you know? And so um, yeah, I think I mean, sometimes it's needed. They did, you know, in that culture, women are considered stupid, meek, and ineffectual. And it, it did really dismay many of these men to discover that I could certainly hold my own with them on the Bible, that I was, you know, I could argue them to a standstill. They could not answer me and I could show them, you know, it's interesting, Eric, Fundamentalists say they believe the Bible, they follow the Bible. The Bible does not acknowledge denominations at all. The church is one. It is right. one church. And fundamentalists just look right past that. they thinking that the Bible is written for a bunch of independent churches. It's not. The, the Bible is written for the body of Christ. So mm. I would get, get me on that. Oh, please get me on that on church, the necessity of church <laughs> discipline. And, and they couldn't. And I don't want to keep talking. I want to give you time to answer questions. But as this journey continued, by mid-2002, I began to realize that most IFB pastors do not know the Bible right. at all. They have very, very poor knowledge of the scripture. 
let's let's dive into that in a second. I do want to cover one thing you just said, and just because because when I when I'm listening to interviews, I'm thinking too rebuttals from somebody who's listening who maybe is in that world. So when you make the statement, you know, child molestation is as part of being IFB as baptism is. There's probably someone listening who's thinking, well, I'm a part of an IFB church and. I would never do that. So like, what right, does she mean sure, by that? They sure. might be defensive. So can you just expound on that a little bit and just what you're, cause I, I would somewhat lean to agree with you in a lot of ways on what you're saying. And I think, I think I get where you're getting at, but I'm curious to hear how you would expound on that or how you would explain that to somebody. Um, well, I, I documented 108 cases of, hmm. of child sexual abuse in the IFB and no church ever did the right thing. So that right. tells you there's a cultural more there that the <clears throat> the practice is well in the IFB also children are often viewed as enemies children are those things you need to keep hidden yeah and, seen, not you know heard. we've heard all <laughs> the yeah well we've heard all the sermons on you need to hit your your children yeah. she's even by making a pitiful look appeal to her husband she is taking away all authority from that child's life if that child is going to have authority mother you gotta let that man be the authority. We had a kid there in the church who kept coming and had these black spots all over his head. <laughs> Punish him with the rod severely. If he screams too hard with the first five gets hysterical, wait. You know, a little psychological terror is sometimes more effective than the pain. A father who will not take his part in discipline, when he does discipline, it's out of anger. Make love to him. If your husband is an angry man, make love. Get rid of his frustration. Make him happy. So I give him five more. So now get up. Still got a bad attitude. Get up. I'm going to say, you're still crying. I'm going to give you something to cry about. And again, that relies on a twisting of scripture. That the Old Testament definitely teaches if you have a son who is behaving like a hoodlum, you ought to hang him up like a servant and whip him. I mean, that is true. That is in there. But again, if we look at the story of Samson, we see Samson was going around burning people's crops and, you know, doing these awful things. But if we go back to the law, you know, the, those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, there's nothing in the Torah about striking your children. There's nothing in the entire Bible about ever striking a daughter. There's nothing about striking an infant. Mm. The, the verses on striking your children are about, really, we would say teenage boys who are engaging in being hoodlums. Um, and while I might be, you know, a little reticent about that, that's a far cry from what is being taught in, in fundamentalism today about hitting everybody for anything. Yeah, a far so, cry from breaking the will of a six-month-old. Yes, right, the Bible never tells you to break the will of your child. And I mean, Christ is the restorer and the one who repairs us. We don't, we don't go to Christ to break the will of our children. Our children, again, Christ said, if you harm one of these or turn them from the faith, it's better for you than a millstone be tied around your neck. And the IFB, I mean, look at all these young people yeah. who've come to your, your, your group and who were coming to me and saying, you know, even if they weren't molested, they are so distraught over all the disgrace and shame and abuse, other types of abuse, physical abuse. But to answer your question again, I, I would point to the 108 cases. I would point to other cases before me. Phil Johnson, 
uh, of John MacArthur's group actually had put out an article about sexual abuse and fundamentalism well mm. before the 1970s. And I don't have that at hand, but he look. was citing yeah. cases. Um, the, you know, when you look at the, just look at any preacher in fundamentalism who has ever written a book on how to raise children, guaranteed his kids have done awful things. I mean, it's, you know, Jeff Owens and his kid, Jeremiah, Jack Hiles with Dave Hiles. Um, but I would, I would fall back on my metrics. I would say, look at these metrics. This is not a one-off. This is part of this culture that mm. a month can't go by where I couldn't find a new case of child sexual abuse in the IFB. It is definitely, it's part of their culture because of that. And then it's part of their culture because their culture does not allow calling people, calling pastors to accountability. The right. fact that they refuse to make their pastors accountable, um, it would tell you that all types of abuse are going to be endemic in that culture. Right. You right. can't be a Christian and a Nazi at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> right. so if you're power driven, you're not charity driven. That, that's, right. you know, you can't be gunning for power and gunning for charity at the same time. It doesn't work. Right. No, so for I hope sure. that answered your question. Yeah, no. And I, I think you're hitting on something that's, again, this is such a hard, because there is no church government, there's not a formal, there's a lot of unspoken church government in the IFB. There's a lot of unspoken, I'd say it's more mafia. Like there's just, uh, there's known rules, things you don't do. There's no procedure for appeal, which we actually have in the Bible. If you look at Acts, when the widows were upset about not being treated equally in the dole. Um, there was an appeals process that these people went through and, and we, there's no, that doesn't exist. And I, I'm sorry. I did want to also tell you the children's home are another indication that mm-hmm. child abuse, child sexual abuse is endemic in fundamentalism. It is the only so-called Christian sect in the entire world that actually has one arm of it is dedicated to taking children out of their homes and putting them in these gulags where they are separated from their parents and can't even communicate with them and then retrained and held captive by people who are not related to them. There, there's no no yeah. Christian sect in the entire world except fundamentalism does that to children. Right. And as I learned when I was, you know, documenting stuff that was going on in these children's homes, about 50% of these children are sexually abused by either a father, a grandfather, or a pastor, and the parents have to get them out of the house to maintain the facade. To, yeah. to And so they send them off to children's homes. So, yeah, so you're looking at there a cultural practice, that there is this cultural practice. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're hitting on the thing of, so I said it's hard to, to draw sometimes clear connections by saying here, this pastor is connected to this pastor. But one thing you're also hitting on that I think is important is there is – you know, I just did an episode and it's, I posted a screenshot in our group, you know, talking about your book, but I'm working on two episode series kind of on that origin of fundamentalism. I'm doing it with, with someone right now. And, you know, we're kind of just walking through like really a lot of it is dealing with the independent side and what that means, you know, the theological reasons that abuse can happen. And one topic that starts making IFB pastors uncomfortable and I'm seeing this when I try to communicate is they'll say, I'll stand with you in the face of abuse. Okay, great. So you're a basic, decent human being, but are you willing to examine your theology and your church practice 
to eliminate the things that make abuse more common. And when you start getting into something potentially being wrong in the theology, that's when you start losing support of these pastors. And I'm sure that's where you saw some of that fall apart as well. Stacey Shiflett comes to mind. He's, yes. you know, he's, he has been forthright in addressing abuse, but the minute Stacey Shiflett goes to another church, uh, another Dave Hiles could walk into his church and do what he did at Miller Road Baptist Church. So there's mm. no protection for the congregation. Right. Um, and to be honest with you, Eric, Stacy Shiflett came along after my time. When I was doing it, there was no pastor who said I, they, they were saying there was no abuse. So I never heard a pastor tell anybody they would stand yeah. with them when there was abuse. Yeah, Stacy's name keeps coming up on the show. I mean, partly because I bring his name up because I find him so interesting is, is as an anomaly. Um, he's it's funny that he's the anomaly saying something about abuse. But um, like I, I, I talked to Stacy probably 30, 40 minutes. Um, and you know, just asked him to be on the show. Um, and I'm still working to get him on. I think it would be interesting just to be able to ask those kind of questions of him. But again, it's something with him, like he's addressing abuse, um, which is good. And I'm, I applaud the good of that because he's one of a very small amount. Um, yeah, is there Cal- anybody else? Is anybody else in the IFB addressing uh, pu- it? The way that he is, no. We're not going to stand up in the pulpit and preach against homosexuality and preach against uh, fornication and preach against adultery and then go preach for a bunch of pedophiles and people that hide pedophiles and cover for them. The hypocrisy is appalling. And you're doing more damage to yourself and more damage to the cause of Christ. You're doing more damage to the independent Baptist movement than I'll ever do. I'm just calling it like I see it. And what bothers me is how many preachers have reached out to me that have emailed me, texted me, and called me and said, we support you. We thank God for you having the courage to say something. But unfortunately, many of these guys will not use their influence to make a difference. They won't use their platforms, their social media platforms to speak out against this blatant hypocrisy. He does have a document that he did like saying, and people have signed their name to it and things. But again, I just, it's a, it's too big an issue to not to just like sign your name on a piece of paper and then not address it, you know? Right. And so right. anyway, so, so with him, everything about him is fundamentalism except for that one issue. And yeah. I would just be really curious because I, 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 I agree with what you said is like, there's this, there's this underlying level of control and, um, whatever you want to call it, this underlying level of manipulation and control and power that he still seems to have and that the church still seems to promote. And, you know, again, I don't want to accuse him of anything because like I said, I appreciate the work that he's done, but I also think he needs to examine what allows this to happen over and over again. You see the, you see the symptoms of the disease, but what is the disease? You know, and I think at the end of the day, it is that man-centric, pastor-centric yes. church structure. Yeah, prideful. It's, very, it's a prideful structure. And it did. I did learn that people, many people will sell their souls in order to belong to something. Mm. They absolutely will not buck a trend. Um, and they don't, they want to be comfortable. Most people are selfish. And we find that religious people are selfish. And Christ. I mean, in Christ's ministry, I, I don't think he ever rebuked a prostitute. Uh, he, he rebuked religious people. So there is a lot of selfishness in 
religious cultures. They're a lot of pride, uh, pride of life. Um, so yeah, I, I would be interested to see what Stacy Shiflett says. But you know, he's coming out of that culture. He's a product of that culture. Is um, it fourth, fourth generation or third generation? Is he? he well, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a. Uh, um, so you you do have to like hope for the grace of God to reach somebody. But it, but again, there's no excuse for it. The, the style of church government in fundamentalism is absolutely wrong and contrary to scripture, period. And it's resulted in a lot of suffering of weak people. People who do not have a voice get crushed in fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, I concluded, was about power and sex. That I mean, that's my belief, that that's really what it's about. Right. Yeah. And um, sometimes the, more often than not, power and sex are intertwined. Um, yes, when you see sure, these cases. Right. Yeah. Um, and then financial side, like obviously guys like Jack Hiles, who um, honestly, I try not to say as much because people say, well, you're only picking on Hiles. But Hiles kind of started the trend of a lot of this stuff. When you have a birthday, you, you kind of give the smaller gifts first, but you have to have some big prize to give. And when it's a special birthday... Like a 70th, you want to do something real special. Preacher, we've often heard how you have used the United Airlines red carpet room and how you like to use that. And in fact, you've taken a few of us there on different occasions and showed us how much you like it. We have a little space at the college here that's not being used, but we think in the appropriate way. The beautiful little porch out the end of the administrative hallway and the lounge that the faculty and staff use. We thought if we raised a little money, we could make that into a beautiful Jack Hiles Red Carpet Room. Brother Clyde, if you'd come in this time, please. We had to raise a little money for this project. And uh, the college here, the student body sitting before you here, the staff and faculty administrators and a few friends around the country have pooled their resources in the last few days have raised $70,000 for your 70th birthday. (laughs) Students... Those are three armed guards. Don't you try to touch that money. Uh, We have a wheelbarrow full of cash for you. Bring it right on up here. That is $70,000 of real cash. Yeah, you do see these kind of patterns, and and you started calling those out. Um, I'm curious, so you've written a couple books about the IFB in general. So you've written obviously the a compendium of Baptist preachers who were involved in abuse and over a very, the amount of names over a very short period of time um, is pretty startling. And I can imagine if we had the internet back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, how many more cases we'd be able to track down. Right. Um, yeah. And I did track a few that went back into the seventies, just a few. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's, for, oh, if you just went to First Baptist Church of Ammon, Indiana, you'd oh. probably dig up dozens. Oh, I'm sure. You're just following their graduates, if you just start digging through the alumni. Yeah, and- well, and that's, yeah. And I mean, Chicago Magazine took my information on that and did an article showing just from Hiles Anderson graduates how many cases there were. So, yeah, oh. I worked with them on, on an article. Right after Jack Scott uh, was arrested, they did an article on that and used my information. So, you wrote that book. And then you also wrote Schizophrenic Christianity, which I'm working through right now. Um, and I'm 
I'm curious, what was the motivation behind that book um, versus obviously like just getting the information out there? You started writing more about the history of the movement. Can you talk about what prompted that book specifically? And yeah, kind Schizophrenic of... Christianity is the first book I wrote on. Oh, okay. on um, yeah, actually, Big Book of Bad Baptist Preachers is the most recent. Got it. Um, after I had started documenting this and I realized this is not, you know, a dozen cases or two dozen cases. When I started to realize this is part of this culture, this is this is a terrible, evil counterfeit of Christianity. I began right. to realize this. And again, there are some really good people in fundamentalism. Not everybody in fundamentalism is awful. Um, but the system itself is still very bad. So I decided what I needed to do was explain it. And I needed to provide case evidence, but mostly I wanted to put out a book that would that would protect people, that people could say, now I get it. This is what I have to do to keep my child safe. So I went all the way back to the beginning. And when you're looking at, at this particular book, this is the second edition. The first edition may not have had, I can't remember. I don't think it had as much history in it. But what I had to do first was say, okay, if you're thinking of Pentecostals, Church of God, Assembly of God, anybody, any any church where the guys wear white shirts and dark ties and they have short hair, and you're thinking that's a fundamentalist, I needed to say at the beginning of the book, that's not a fundamentalist, that you know, a guy who's a Jehovah's Witness is not a fundamentalist. He will not call himself a fundamentalist, and a fundamentalist will not call him a fundamentalist. So in, I tried to define terms to so that readers would understand that when I use the term fundamentalist, I am actually using it in a theological sense, not a media-driven sense, because right. the media will call anybody waving a Bible a fundamentalist. Yeah. So um, I wanted to do that. I wanted to show, you know, fundamentalists really don't like history. A sociologist, James All, he wrote a book called Spirit and Flesh, where he lived among a fundamentalist congregation, and it was mm. a really was a Jerry Falwell type fundamentalist congregation. Right. Um, for him, it actually opened his eyes to the presence of God. I mean, but he did record a lot of the, you know, the troubling things that he saw in them. But oh dear, I've lost my thread. You, you were talking um, about um, fundamentalists have a dislike for history. Oh yeah, and he said that in fundamentalism they have instant history. So mm -hmm. like, when you go to First Baptist Church of Hammond when Jack Hiles was alive? They would they would have like these big multimedia spectaculars and you'd see George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Jack Hiles, like like effortlessly plugging these total non-entities into history as though you're like your church is a big part of the historical timeline mm. of the nation or of Christianity. So fundamentalists don't want to hear about the centuries and centuries of other great men who, who stood up to things, especially, oh, my goodness, if they're not Baptist. And so right. um, I wanted them, therefore, to give a history, to give a brief, accurate history, to give some reality to this is what fundamentalism actually is. It's not a worldwide ever since the dawn of time there. You know, I wanted to show that it's a product of the 20th century. It has one foot firmly planted in atheism. One foot mm. of fundamentalism is planted in social Darwinism uh, and B.F. Skinner's um, conditioning theories. So that was my next book. But anyway, but 
So I wanted to do that and then launch into an explanation of how fundamentalist churches work and then how child molesters work. But yeah, right. fundamentalism appeals to sociopaths because fundamentalism is about power. Right. And sociopaths gravitate to power. That's interesting. So you say that because I actually had um, Dr. Kelly Palfi who wrote, um, she wrote why men don't report uh, or uh, men too, uh, why men don't report sexual abuse. And she worked oh. with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for several years, arresting child molesters, um, cracking down on that stuff. And then she now is a therapist who works with men who've experienced sexual abuse and have struggled to come forward because it's a huge epidemic of, men oh. that, you know, experience abuse worked- and I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. No, when fine. I worked with the victims of Charles Shiflett, oh my goodness, the, the guys who he had, some he had beaten, a couple he had sodomized when they were school children. Honest, they had physical ailments related to it. You, you, know, you look at these people and you think this person will never, never, they can be happy. Um, one, you know, one of them was married and had children. He was a good dad, but you look at him and you just think he's never going to be free of this. He's never never going to and and it's just it's heartbreaking what yes what this does to men it is a field that has not been examined because men will not come forward and say right. it has happened because of the toxic masculinity yes. culture and right. um, but she, but she talks about that she said you know some of the people that they arrested you know there's people who plant themselves there's sociopaths who plant themselves into positions for the sole purpose of acquiring yes. victims and so right. what that yeah what, Yeah. Yeah. And so that conversation really plugged into my mind. The, it made sense that there would be so many abusers who go into the pastoral ministry because they see an opportunity Mm -hmm. to abuse. And this was confirmed with the situation in faith Baptist of Wildemar um, speaking with one of the victims from there. She told me that, uh, and it was actually one of the main pieces of evidence that put this person in jail but she told me that he called and said, you know, the pastor's not going to do anything. Right. And so he used knowledge knowing he probably became a youth pastor knowing that that was the end goal. Right. That's the culture. He can get away with it. Yeah. 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 Well, yes. And again, in fundamentalism, women are looked at, I hate to use this dated term, but simply sex objects. Women are not valued for their opinion. They're valued because they can cook in the kitchen when we're having turf picnics and they're valued for sex and that's it. Right. And so why not abuse them? You know, it's, it's right. like kicking a puppy. Well, it's not nice, but you know, you were mad, you felt like doing it. So, and right. so, yeah, women are so demeaned in fundamentalism. Um, but yeah, the, the, to be a fundamentalist pastor, all you have to have is a dark suit with a white shirt and a dark tie a King James Bible, and you have to learn the rhetoric of how to preach mm. in the pulpit. But you don't even need a good knowledge of the Bible. If you basically are a good showman, a pulpiteer, you can hang up a shingle. There's absolutely no professional credential you have to have to be an IFB pastor. Yeah. You just start being one. As, and, as long and, as you're funny or you can be a yeah. good speaker or you can, yeah. you know, and that's where you look at a guy like Jack Hiles. Like mm-hmm. Jack Hiles is a charismatic speaker. Yes, you know, yes, when very I, engaging. Yeah. when I watch clips of Jack and I've watched, uh, I've watched a significant amount of Jack Hiles preaching because I'm fascinated that a man, he was not a, he did not come across deeply educated. He did not nope. come across, you know, he, he is not a theologian by any stretch, No, but no, when I sit there watching clips of Jack Hiles preaching, 
I understand the appeal. And not not that I agree with what he's saying, obviously. Like I've played clips of his preaching in you know the podcast, but I can see how someone who's already bought into the baseline theology that he's promoting or the baseline worldview that he's promoting could sit under him for years and think that he's the best gift of God of right. all time. Yeah. Because he's a super engaging persona. He's an amazing speaker. He the way yeah, that he, he was, grabs he really you was. as Where an audience, you know. Yeah. Um and same with a lot of these guys. I I see it, you know, with any of the any of the pastors. I just think of like growing up, like when you'd see someone at an event speak, it was always incredibly charismatic, incredibly likable and watchable and funny. But when you start looking back at like what did I actually learn? <laughs> it's it's right, very yeah. yeah, it's very small. So um yeah, I think I think the the breakdown I'm seeing of fundamentalist pastors tends to be a good guy who learned really bad philosophy and theology from one of the colleges or someone who recognizes the potential for abuse and enjoys the opportunity to jump in right. and do that. Right. So it, it, it can be either. And the first type, he either has to confront the reality. Eventually, if he's a good guy, he's going to see the reality and he either sells out and stays a fundamentalist preacher or, or he leaves you know, he leaves right. it. Right. And then which everybody I'm, says he's gay. So, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is funny. Like that you say that I, I see, I see so many people. So yeah, the people that I've seen who in the IFB were the good guys, the guys that I would feel comfortable with, talk to still have connection to none of them are connected with that movement. Now it was a very right. quick well, ejection from the movement. Um, I think a lot of them that do stay is because they're good guys. They think there's a chance to steer the ship around. They think there's a chance to, you know, maybe reform. I see a lot of guys talk about reforming the movement, taking it. Josh Tice a few years ago was really pushing that. I know he's no longer IFB, but he was really pushing. Let's, let's go to the good things and leave the bad things. But, you know, we've talked a little about a little bit already, but what do you think about that? What do you think about that mindset? I mean, obviously you started writing with the mindset of like, Oh, I'll change things. It's that optimistic. Right. And that's yeah. how I initially, I was like, Oh, I'll tell people what's going on. They don't know. That's why it's still there. They just don't know. I'm the first one to know, but you right. very quickly yeah. find out that, Oh, everybody knows this. Everybody I'm, knows. The, I'm the fool that found out last. Yeah. And that's now, a good way of putting right. it. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And now I either have to jump out of this ship or I have to just keep growing. And well, I was already out of fundamentalism, really. Um, when I started doing the documentation, I was I was a very conservative evangelical, and I still am conservative evangelical. Um, or I'm conservative Christian now. I wouldn't call myself evangelical. You're, you're Presbyterian, right? I was Presbyterian um, because now I have PTSD. I fall apart whenever I walk into a church. If I if I were anything, I would be conservative Anglican. I'm sort of okay. leaning back towards liturgy, um, but I can't walk into a church without falling apart. So I, no. I don't, I, I, I just, I, I can't do it. BTSD is too severe. So, right. um, but. And if I may, what? if I may ask, yep. is that, is that due to the research that you did? Yes. Yeah, okay. definitely. So yeah. I'm curious. And I'm, I'm asking that because I'm noticing with myself, um, you know, this has been an eye-opening year, and I'm I'm sorry to talk. I don't want to I don't want to take That's your time. Right. Just me talking, but um, I'm always interested when I get on these calls because part of it is like 
I'm selfish. I want to have these conversations too. And reading your stuff, I've wanted to talk to you. Um, you know, my, um, you know, I, the more that I research, the more I feel similar in the way of it makes it very hard for me to trust. Well, okay. Let me, let me restart that. So my, um, and I, I haven't really talked about this a ton on the show. Um, and I, it's funny when things actually come up, but my really, I had a very strong relationship with my youth pastor. I was telling you that off, off mic. And when I found out that he knew about the abuse case before me, and when I found out that his response to that was to call me bitter, when we had a, I would say a father son relationship. And I don't mind saying that on the show. I I guess I'll say that had a very close relationship. And the fact that that was the situation that fractured the relationship was me speaking out was very impactful on me. And I'm noticing, um, I actually just talked to a therapist, uh, that I had on the show about this. I kind of stole a free therapy session after. Um, but I just said, you know, I have a hard time identifying issues with 30 to 40 year old men, like people that are, you know, people that are like 10 to 20 years older than me. I'm totally blind to when something bad is about to happen. And I keep finding myself in relationships that go wrong with like mentor figures. And, you know, basically we talked and she said, well, you you have a disconnection in your brain because your mind's saying, you know, just try it again. Try to make that connection work again with someone else, someone else. else. And it's turning off all of your warning signs. Um, So that's one element that makes it very hard for me when I walk into a church and I have a 30 to 40 year old or 50 year old or even any age pastor come up to me. I'm looking for ulterior motives when I walk in, which is a good thing because it protects especially now that I have a daughter and things like that, it's protection. But there's also things like, uh, you know, I'm never going to put my daughter in a nursery. I'm never going to, you know, never do that. Right. And there's all these things that are expected by American churches, evangelical IFB. There's things that are just a given. Like you go to church, you drop your kids off in kids care, you go sit in the service. And I know too much to be comfortable with that. And, you know, the idea like we're seeing a lot of insanity in tr- in evangelicalism as a whole right now. Yes. Yeah. It's it's very Repulsive. hard for me to feel comfortable as a Christian in a church. Um, well, that was why I started I worked with a guy who was conservative Angli- Anglican and because I grew up Catholic. I was Catholic mm. until I was 13 or 14 and I'm definitely not Catholic. Like I, you know, I I'm Protestant but I was really harsh against liturgy, you know, liturgical mm-hmm. service until I learned that in the Anglican church, they actually have a goal of going through the Bible yearly in readings that actually, if you're attending services, you are getting exposure to the scripture and valuable teaching that is not focused on newspaper headlines. Mm-hmm. But the other thing about liturgical churches is um, they might not have a church nursery. They might, you know, if they're not, it's, it's evangelical family. churches yeah. that split and compartmentalize other churches. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't have children, Eric, so I don't know the answer to that. But I would say this is a good time to start looking at, you yeah. know, other conservative Protestant churches that are not built on the evangelical model. Yeah. No, we um we actually spent, um, and I'm <laughs> we never talk about theology really deeply heavily on the show because it's not really the purpose, but um why not? There's a, there's times here and there for everything, but, um, you know, we leaned very heavily toward, you know, Presbyterianism for a while. And, oh, okay. and, um, I was, I'm still 
I can, I can, I'm really down the middle of the line. I see both sides of the baptism argument and I, I very, I could be persuaded either way. Like when I'm reading it, I see the biblical argument for both the Baptist view of baptism right. and the, you know, Presbyterian view. And I understand how they come to their conclusion. I just don't have a strong enough sway either way to like, fully dive into like if I was joining a Presbyterian church, I'd have to baptize my daughter. I'd have to, you know, there's things that I would have to do that. I just want to make sure that I'm on the same page. So that's, I you. you know, but that's definitely what I do appreciate about the Presbyterian. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of like RC Sproul. I watched a lot of his stuff. Like I, you know, I really appreciate the idea of being a family attending church. And the family is the church inside the church, not someone else raises your child for you and, and that right. kind of element. So yeah. anyway, all that to say, like, I, I was just curious because that's, I'm noticing more and more, I just feel that doom gloom feeling in my stomach when I walk into a church or when I go into a parking lot of a church, even if it's, I know it's a good church from all accounts or it's just the bubble bursts and you are aware that something can happen. Um, well, I think you may have expectations that are higher than reality is going right. to afford you. Um, mm. And when I was younger, because I grew up in such a very dysfunctional family, I always wanted somebody to mother me. I always wanted a mother um, and went through a lot of heartbreak with women who got some type of like ego boost out yeah. of that. And I tried to be what they wanted me to be, but I could only ever be myself which is, you know, I am an unusual person. And so um, eventually I had to learn that, one, I have to love them and I have to expect from myself to love this person regardless of how this person is. Like I have to love this person and not just go needing their mentoring. I have to be responsible to love them. And then to just try to be open. I'll tell you, Eric, I I have such good friends who are Hindu and Buddhist um, and Methodist. And, and I don't believe, I may not believe another person's religion or denominational persuasion, but I'll, I'll tell you in being open to other people, I have seen a lot of goodness in other people that has in some ways shaped my theology. Um, but I don't expect now to know the end of every relationship or the end of every situation. Mm. There is a certain wisdom in just taking it as it comes. Right. Um, I will tell you this. I, I believe that nobody is saved except by the shed blood of Christ. But I have learned after seeing such deep evil and depravity in the church and moments of such brilliant light and compassion outside of it, that I really have decided just to leave that in the hands of Christ. That that is really in his hands. But, right. you know, sadly, so you can be mentored by somebody who is not in a church. Sure. Right. Um, but also you do have to realize needy people go to churches, needy people. Right. And then as soon as we all get in church, we all polish ourselves up so we don't look needy. And yeah. Needy people go to churches. And that is the way it's supposed to be. You yeah. just have to remember that when you walk in. Right. That's awesome. So, um, I mean, we've covered a little bit about the, you know, the foundation of abuse. We've talked about kind of, you know, the, I guess the, uh, systemic nature, the, the epidemic of abuse with an IFB. I'm curious, I know you've been out for a while now and you're now you're still keeping tabs a little bit. You're still, you're still following up. You're in groups like my group. You're, you know, you're keeping an eye on what's going on. 
I'm curious what your perspective is. Having done all of this research, what do you think the next couple of years holds for the fundamentalist movement? Because there is a lot of shift happening right now. There's guys like Josh Tice who are really pushing for a, a new independent Baptist that's, you know, doing away with some of the more negative things. And, you know, it's the theology is somewhat similar, but, you know, they're changing things up. You've got guys like Steven Anderson doing the new IFB, which is like a more hardcore, oh, yeah. you know, more, Crazy you know, Anderson, yeah, which, yeah. which is barely worth even acknowledging because they're, they are a drop in the bucket. Um, but I'm curious, what do you see for the next couple of years? I have people saying like, don't focus on a dying movement, but it's still by my calculation, there's still about, um, and by the reports that I'm reading, it still seems that there's about 3 million IFB people. Yeah, there's around. a lot. Of, we will always have fundamentalism. We will always, there will always be, there always has been. So what we you, will always. Go oh, sorry. What I was going to say, what do you think is the next stage of that? Because it's not going to be, I, I, I do see places like first Baptist of Hammond are not going to hit the same heights that they hit in the current cultural yeah, climate. Yeah, yeah. But what do you think is the next stage of that? Is it the Steven Anderson types that kind of start growing up? Is it the, you know, just another denomination that's going to kind of start, absorbing that what do you think well i mean we do have denominations that do absorb from fundamentalism the presbyterian what is it the presbyterian denomination that is still conservative they tend to take Uh, the pca yeah they i mean that was what i attended for many years um they tend to absorb people like you who are pretty well educated and and professional and you get you have enough in the IFB, so you go over because PCA is open on baptism. You can be baptized as long as your conscience is satisfied. They're you know they're cool with it. Um, I think the 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 fundamentalism and IFB will become more radical, and I think Steve Anderson is a pointer to that. Mm. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more blending of it with white supremacy. I think we'll we'll see that become much more an arm of fun. You know, I think. Not all fundamentalists, but I think there will that will develop that that will become <clears throat> part of white supremacy. I think that the Bob Jones types, like Liberty, will be moving more towards modern evangelicalism. That they're going to try to lose the fundamentalist title. And BJU right now kind of has shed that as much yeah. as they can without well, they, outright. They just hired on a masters, a former masters university. Um, staffer to to okay. head up Bob Jones University, so they're definitely leaning more toward the reformed, somewhat more you know quote unquote liberal kind of college. Model. Right, what they used to call liberal. Yeah, they yeah. yeah. So they'll move that way. Pensacola will probably move more towards Hiles Anderson with you know their really? hard. Oh yeah, I think so. It doesn't matter how much money they have and how nice their campus looks. They're kooks. So you know you just can't hmm. the whole Ruckman thing, the KJV thing. That will really be the dividing line. Fundamentalists who are in the Bob Jones or Jerry Falwell model, who take a more educated view of scripture, will move towards evangelicalism. The ones that are KJV only, I believe, will go more towards radical right. They will get more radicalized and become more radical right. Um, It's... But no, I don't think we'll ever stop having fundamentalists. We're we're always going to have... There are always going to be people who desperately need somebody to tell them what to do. And sadly that, <laughs> that, I mean, it is the requirement of the church to take care of these people, to care for them, to protect them. But, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, there are people, it, sometimes it's an intelligence thing. They're, they really are not intellectually able to cope with the times that they are in, but sometimes it's 
I don't know what you would call it, their spirit or their emotional growth, they can't cope independently. They have to be in a supportive situation. And that is part of the duty of the church. And because sadly, evangelicalism doesn't want to deal with weak, troubled, or even deformed people, they they fall down a few rungs into fundamentalism where they do find a niche. And then, and they just sit there and believe everything they're told. I mean, that is sad. Um, but that's, that there is a good percentage of humanity that is that way. Right. And then there are people who profit from fundamentalism. They may not be child molesters, but they do well business-wise. They're going to be, they get oh. votes. So yeah, yeah you, there's that too. Yeah. You look at, um, I mean, again, I'm being careful. I say this because I don't want to make an accusation that can't be backed up, but I see a very troubling correlation with, you know, especially with Trump, um, I believe oh. it was under Trump's. Well, yeah, we can talk about Trump, I'm sure, all day. But, but, um, you know, a lot of the laws changing about the ability to endorse candidates from the pulpit, uh, that changing yes. was a big yeah. step. Um, and then you see situations like what's most concerning to me, and I, I, and I'm seeing it happen now, is I see organizations like Awake America. I believe this is the most exciting time to be a Christian that's ever existed in the history of America. And I want to tell you, God is moving on our nation's capital. Among all the division and the hatred and the spite that you see, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has come in because men of God and women of God are walking up there by the power of God and reaching our nation's servants. I'm watching people get saved. We're watching people cry and ask for prayer. We're watching as God undertakes to do what only God can do. Men of prayer up there asking God to do the miraculous. I see organizations like, um, you know, all of these little religious coalitions to right, go yeah. go to capital, the Capitol, go to Washington, D.C., and manipulate the, the course of the country through there it's kind of a new version of Falwell's, you know, you know, what Falwell established with the moral, you know, the moral majority. Um, You're seeing this happen again through, I mean, I don't think there has organized. So as Falwell was, so I think they'll struggle with awake America and things, but I see that happening. And then I see even in local governments, um, it's just not a healthy relationship, especially when you're talking about abuse, when you're talking about, you know, situations of scandal to have a very close relationship where a mayor knows that he's going to get his position reelected if he does well by the church. Right. It's a super a dangerous spot yeah. to be. Um, I see that happening. Um, I, I don't know if this could be considered uh slanderous, but I'll, I won't name the church, but well, you know, yeah, I won't name the church just cause I, this is kind of fringe because it's partly my theory. Um, and I can talk off mic about it, but there's a large church. You probably know who it is. There's a large church. Um, they've, they had a major murder case connected to the church, um, back in a couple years ago. And the case kind of dis, it, it was a huge thing and it just kind of disappeared. There's no information on it past that. Um, they had issued a statement. They retracted the statement. They put another statement back out. Was this um, where the young man was shot at the stoplight? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, d- I don't want to say the name just because I think that's, 
there, I don't have evidence of this being the case, but it is weird to me that that specific church has such a strong connection to their mayor. The mayor is heavily involved in the church. Like he's involved at the church plays. He comes and speaks. He speaks at church events. It's, it seems to me that there is a, I scratch your back, you scratch my relationship. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, Chuck Shiflett and and no relation to Stacy Shiflett, but he had a strong relationship with the police. The police would not arrest him. Right. Well, well, I mean, the for, kids went out right. and swore out the warrants and they served the warrants on him. I mean, right. that because you can well, do that in Virginia. Look at Indiana. Right. The oh, reason, my goodness. The reason Ron, that First Ron Baptist Williams. Church of Hammond or Ron Williams or any of these organizations is because they bring in so much. Like, look at First Baptist Church of Hammond. Like, of course, they're going to do days where they honor the police department. Of course, yeah. they're going to do days because when it comes time to like something there's an air of something being wrong you want to make sure that you're on the right side of that equation um yeah in indiana i mean we saw this just recently our our mutual friend joy uh, writer just was speaking to extend the statute of limitations in indiana and it's amazing that there wasn't much of like a yeah we should definitely do this it was like okay we'll take a look at it and uh yeah we can push it a few more years but it's you know and you look at Hepzibah House with Ron Williams. Right. Like and Ron how Williams long they was, operated with no oversight. He was called out specifically by the Republican Party in Indiana to honor him for having donated so much money to them. I mean, clearly, Ron Williams, no police force would respond to complaints about him. Nobody yeah. would go on there. And definitely he owned that section of Indiana because he was just pouring so much money into the and, you know, Eric, none of us are called to be Americans. And patriotism, mm, yeah. like the word loyalty, never shows up in the Bible. And fundamentalists try to work around it. We have one city, the city of God. We have one place where we belong with God. We, America is great. I'm glad I'm in America. But I know full well America is going to pass away. I can't stop yeah. that. I mean, that's a testimony to God's grandeur that all nations pass away. We might be seeing it a little sooner than I thought I was going to see it. But um, to bring it back to schizophrenic Christianity and the work I did, I will say that when 9-11 happened, I did believe that if Christians didn't change their ways, that the Lord would visit us again with another great event, a great catastrophe. And, And I have had a heavy heart all year wondering, you know, is 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 this it? Is this is this the great catastrophe I have feared? And I don't know. I, I pray for the oppressed and the suffering of the earth. Um, we certainly have the president we deserve if we don't repent. But I mean, it's so clear to me. And this is what the one thing fundamentalism will not preach: repentance. Yeah. And Christians, all of us, me included, need to repent and and seek what Christianity truly is. And that means divorcing it from Americana. We have to be Christians first, definitely. And be an American, you know, way down. So anyway, I'm sorry, but go ahead with your line of questions. No, that's um, this one. (laughs) No, that's, I mean, I think we're on the same page on a lot of these issues and even the political side, like I've stayed somewhat away because, but it's inevitable. Like that stuff just, it's, it's taught and it's hard to avoid it when it's taught from the pulpit, you know? And yeah, um, it is. Yeah. And I was totally, totally 
one of the, you know, I mean, I was totally swept up in it. What made me stop being a rampant conservative was documenting the abuse cases. Mm. As more time went by and I was continuing to document and I saw the suffering, I came to realize that my previous political mindset had separated me from people who suffer. Mm. And, and I eventually realized I need to I need to be voting on behalf of people less fortunate than I am. I need to be working on behalf of people less fortunate than I am. And so I, um, I stopped being a, a staunch political conservative. Right. Yeah. It was kind of a, I went on a similar journey again, or diving into some subjects I don't usually talk about on the show, but um, you know, I think it's important for context of just, you know, this is my journey. This is kind of what I've been on is, yeah, you know, I, I yeah. you know, I, and there's people that I respect that disagree in, in some ways yeah. and that's fine. But, you know, I, you know, I've, it was before the, it was before the Kaepernick situation um, where I didn't realize how big an issue people would take with someone like Kaepernick taking a knee. Right. For the that surprised anthem. me too. Yeah. Um, I, just because I had never seen anybody do it. And so, but I, I literally about a year before that happened, um, I had come to the point where I stopped saying the pledge of allegiance for, oh, um, and, oh, man. um, and, um, I just lost 4,000 listeners, but, um, who, but, who wanted you to say it? I mean, who was asking you well, to say it? Well, I had grown up in, I had grown up in, um, fundamentalism and we did that every chapel service we said the pledge of allegiance we said okay. the pledge okay. we pledged to the christian flag pledged to the bible um all three of those things i think are wrong <laughs> um theologically but um i i just came to the point i talked to my wife i talked to my pastor at the time i've talked to a lot of people since then and i just said i don't see anywhere in scripture where i'm to pledge my allegiance to anything other than christ right um yeah, good, and yeah. You know, so, and I didn't make a show of it. Like I didn't, I didn't, you know, sit down, like I still stood up, but I just wouldn't say it. And then, you know, but that was a position like I just kind of quietly came to in the Bible for me, I'm not going to say it. And once the Kaepernick thing happened, I found myself hearing Christians say like, you know, this is disgusting. Why would people support this? Blah, 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 blah. Like all this and I was like, I was sitting there, I was like, oh, what would they think of me if they knew for the last year, whenever <laughs> I'm at an event, I'm not saying the words because I don't, they don't coincide with my religion. Like, it's funny because I have a lot of positions and again, we don't have to get into all of these now, but like, I have a lot of positions that I think I don't, I have those positions because I'm a Christian where people would say that's part of being a Christian is having the opposite belief, <laughs> you know, like right, um, yeah. when I, when I say like, I'm very iffy on capital punishment or I'm, yeah, me too. Yeah. I have a lot of reservations about capital punishment. Right. You know? Um, and now the rebuttal is always, what about these, uh, what about all the people you're reporting? What about the pedophiles and the, you know, and they try to swing in that way. And I'm just like, I, I have a very strong value of human life and I, I have that from my faith. And so I just, I appreciate you being open about like just the, the political and the religious side, because it is what I, what I want people to take away from this episode because, and I, I'd like to just say like what I hope happens. I don't hope everybody that listens to this podcast becomes a, you know, like I've been accused of becomes a liberal hater of Christianity. That's not at all my goal. And I'm actually, 
I think it would actually surprise some how much I, how much I believe of Christianity, like what, how involved in Christianity that I am, how much I read regarding um, my Christian views. Um, I think it would actually startle some people, but I, um, you know, I also, I guess I just want people to think and, and I, I, that sounds, I don't want that to sound demeaning or arrogant or, but something you're hitting at something I'm hitting at, I think a lot is you have to step back from your religious view or your political view or your worldview in general that you were raised on. And you have to go through a process. I, I called it um, just kicking out the, kicking at the floorboards of my faith. Like what are the things that stand up to biblical foundational, you know, my worldview and what things just fall apart. And so you kick pants on women. It falls apart really quick. Um, you know, kicking at church, no church accountability falls apart really quick. Um, on and on and on and on. And so, you know, I, what I'm encouraged by, by your work is that you, you've kept a steady head. I think you've kept focused on what you're doing. You've allowed yourself to be very honest about the facts without becoming what you've been accused of, which is bitter, angry, you know, or I would say maybe you're angry. I would say, yeah, I've gotten angry angry at times, but, but not bitter, but not at God and not at Christ. Right. I think, in my opinion, Christianity today lacks several things. One, a commitment to suffer. Mm-hmm. And fundamentalism is, is sort of a version of the prosperity gospel. How often have we heard, do this, do this, and God will bless you. Do this, and this. Christ told us that we have to take up our cross mm-hmm. to follow him. And I think it was in documenting the cases and seeing what these kids suffered. And I was getting sicker and sicker, especially the last half of that 13 years um, and now, you know, I have PTSD. I have a whole, you know, bunch of health problems and I'm, I'm a fourth degree black belt retired. I was a super athlete, uh, super athlete in the sense that I was training two to four hours a day. I broke concrete with my hand. I knocked out a couple people. <laughs> so I put a guy in a hospital once by accident. That strong person who was so, um, sure of herself went away. Right. She's never coming back. And I had to learn, not only is this God's will for me, it's actually good because it does unite me to my people Hmm. who are Christ's people, who are the people who suffered. Hmm. And Christians today have lost that, that there is a value in suffering. And we have to not only not run away from it, but if it's in the way of what we're trying to do out of charity or some sense of serving God, we've got to run to it and just accept suffering is going to be a part of this. And the other thing is the simple word charity, which I'm telling you, I'm really not a loving person and I'm not a humble person. I am a fighter. That was why I could take on the IFB. And I, even when I was doing it, I recognized I'm single, have no kids, have no family. I could see these guys trying to find that stuff out about me to hurt me. And I, because they wanted to hurt me through people who I had relationships with. Well, right. I lost all my, all my friends, you know, I kind of lost because they were all fundamentalists. And I could accept that and say, you know what? I'm just going to fight these guys. So I'm not like all that nice of a person, but I have learned Christ is patient with me. 
but my path has to be charity. Even if I'm, if I'm only like that far up the path, that still has to be the path. Right. Charity, not power, but charity. And that is a very difficult thing, but that is to be crucified with Christ is Christianity. And, and until Christians or people who profess to be Christians recognize that, we don't have a Christianity. We just have a counterfeit of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, so no. that's what I've concluded. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you there. And I, um, there was something you said that I wanted to circle back to. Um, but I, I just, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, that's, there was so much there that, that I connect with oh, and there's, you. you know, I, I've been on the same kind of journey and it, it I do sometimes I'm, you know, I'm a different, I think we're actually probably opposite personality types based on your description. Like I'm, I'm incredibly empathetic. I'm, I would say in a lot of ways, if I was to use like a IFB term, I would say I have kind of a pastoral heart of how I deal with people of what they would say that is. Um, you know, I, I empathize with people. I take on a lot of the emotions of the people that I'm talking to and, you know, well, I, I shed a lot of tears over yeah. victims, but my, my, what I resorted to after I shed those tears was I'm going to go kick some fundamentalist pastor up his arse. Like, and again, I had to learn not to be that way. Yeah. So, and I hope I didn't just say a word that's going to get you in big trouble on the podcast. No, but, it's fine. Of all the things okay. that are going to get me in trouble from this podcast, it won't be that. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but no, so, um, so just kind of wrapping up and I, I'm, probably we'll definitely bring you on for a part two because I think there's a lot oh, we can great. talk okay, about. Sure. Um, yeah. I'd love to even dive in if we could think about a little bit, like dive into some of the political uh, messaging within the IFB, oh, okay. maybe right. really get us into hot water. Um, yeah, but, get in trouble. yeah. but I, I know your books have been awesome. I'm still going through um, some of them and um, I, I'm always reading stuff from your blog when I'm searching out stuff. So oh, I find myself there a useful. lot. I'm glad. Uh, um, but can you just tell people where they can, uh, find some more information, maybe some websites or where they can pick up your books just so they can oh, okay. well, do some research. Amazon, under my name, Jerry Massey, Schizophrenic Christianity is what I would recommend in terms of the abuse. The big book of Bad Baptist Preachers is, yeah, more for people, if you're wondering, is there really abuse? Probably that. I wrote a book, I don't have a copy, called Bitter Root. And that is the book that explores how fundamentalism actually has one foot firmly planted in atheism. And it, yeah. it looks at several fundamentalist doctrines and practices that have nothing to do with scripture and everything to do with the athe with atheistic social mores that were in practice, like around the turn of the 20th century. So um, there's that. Then another book, Secret Radio by Grace Jovian is if, if you're wondering what is Hiles Anderson, what was first Baptist of Hammond? It's a novel set there. It was actually the first book that I wrote that got me in really deep hot water with um, uh, IFB pastors. It's written by Grace Jovian. That was the pen name that I used. So Secret Radio by Grace Jovian. They're all on Amazon. Uh, Secret Radio is fiction, but it, it covers really Hiles Anderson in the 1990s when the major scandals broke. Okay. It's Grace that's looking at it. And the school is called greater independent baptist college part of greater independent baptist church and i said it in indianapolis but if if you know anything you look at it you're you're gonna know you're even gonna know who the people are so if you're familiar at all with the history of Hiles anderson 
Um, my webpage is, uh, it's at www.jerryhu.net, J-E-R-I-W-H-O. Uh, I know I don't really update it that much anymore, but there's a lot in there on the culture of fundamentalism and how to get out of fundamentalism. So I hope it's helpful to people. I've left it up in order to help it, you know, hopefully yeah. hoping it would be helpful to them. Yeah, no, I know. I definitely referenced it as I'm trying to find information. Blog on the way is, is yeah. what it's called. Blog on the way, but jerryhoo.net. Perfect. Yeah. And you can actually find a link too if, um, if you're having trouble finding that or for whatever reason, if you go to the Preacher Boys website too, I know there's a lot of information oh, around right. this. Um, if you go there um, to the abuser database, uh, there is a link out to that website oh, right. as okay, well. Right, so, yeah. so that way people can check it out. I'll put all that in the show notes so people can connect. Um, and there's, like I said, there's tons we could talk about. Um, I feel like I've, uh, you know, gotten to talk to you one sided yeah, getting to nice read to your you. book and, it's been good to actually get to talk in person. So, um, but yeah. Yes, Eric. We'll, thank you. It's very nice to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for, you know, being such a advocate of my, my research. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.